morning. Morning. Well, that's the icebreaker bit out of the way. That was obviously all planned. Thank you, Tom. Okay. So um, this morning, we're going to continue our, uh, our studies in Mark. Just to uh, introduce myself. Oh, could you just grab my water? Thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm sure most of you know me, but of those of you that don't, uh, my name is Paul. Uh, I'm married to Alice, who was uh, singing this morning. Uh, and we have two uh, lovely little children who have gone out to kids' work, uh, Lily and Bertie. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm a builder. Um, Alice uh, is training to be a teacher. Um, so for those of you that know, that's a massive career change from her because, what, nine months ago she was a police officer. So, um, yeah, quite a, big, quite a big change. So the passage that we're going to be looking at today is Mark chapter 10 and verses 13 to 31. And I would imagine that most of us are familiar with this uh, with this passage, but just for a little bit of background. So Jesus, uh, we find Jesus in the region of Judea and Jordan. And again, as has been a theme throughout this passage, he was surrounded by crowds. And he'd just been tested by the Pharisees uh, and uh, they were trying to trick him in their normal manner. And they'd asked him a tough question about divorce. And this is where we now pick up the passage straight after that. So reading from verse 13, it's titled, Let the Children Come to Me. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to, sue, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them. And we read on, entitled The Rich Young Man. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, 
truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So let's start off by looking at the first of the passages, Jesus and the children, verses 13 to 16. So we read here that the people were bringing the children to Jesus. Um, it doesn't go into any details. It doesn't go into the reason for this. Um, you know, was it because they wanted the children to meet someone famous? Did the parents have the knowledge and understanding of, of who Jesus was and that they wanted the children to be blessed. All these things we, we don't know. But the disciples, their view of the children was they're, they're a hindrance to Jesus. They saw the children as a nuisance and an annoyance. So Jesus had had a lot on his plate. And in the minds of the disciples, he didn't need to be troubled by children. The children have got no knowledge or understanding of who Jesus is. So the disciples were there and they were kind of acting as bodyguards for Jesus they were acting as the receptionist at the doctors, the, the gatekeeper to assure only those that really, really needed to see Jesus were going to be there and able to do it. And children, they didn't hit any of that criteria. So the first point that I want to highlight from this it is very simple. And that is that Jesus came for all. The young, the old, the sick the healthy, the rich, and the poor. So look at at children at this time. Children had no status. They had no knowledge. They had no power. They had no wealth. And importantly, what we read here is there's nothing to say that these children were sick, so we can assume that they were healthy. So they hit none of the checkpoints that in the eyes of the disciples were required to speak to Jesus. And Jesus was known as a teacher and a healer of the sick. So in the disciples' eyes, why are we bringing the children to him? And then Jesus does something which is remarkable, and he shows as clearly as possible that he is there for everyone. He's not there just to heal the sick. He's here for the healthy as well. He's not there just for the educated. He's there for the uneducated. And he's not there just for the rich. He's there for the poor. So there's no demographic that Jesus isn't there for. So we need to take some learning from that, that we don't act as gatekeepers for our church. So we have to be careful that we don't judge people. We hear about what someone has done. And we don't think to ourselves, oh, they wouldn't fit into our church. They don't deserve salvation. I won't talk to them about Jesus and the church. That's not our choice or our decision. We've just been given the job to share the good news of Jesus. And we don't decide who hears it. This is Jesus' church. We don't decide who comes in. Everybody is welcome. I'd like to think that if we looked in the dictionary at the definition of an open door policy, the answer should say church. 
So is that the case for us individually, and is that the case for us here as a church? And then Jesus goes on, and he rebukes the disciples and says, let the children come to me. And then he touches and he blesses the children. And he makes it abundantly clear to the disciples that the kingdom of God, it belongs to the children. It's not just for a special few. He's made it clear here that the kingdom of God is for those who have nothing as much as it is for those who have everything. It's for the children and for the adults. And it is for each and every one of us here. No one is excluded. Your circumstances are irrelevant to being included to God. There's no barrier to receiving his kingdom. And then in verse 15, we read, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what does, what does that mean? So the joy of being a child is that you have absolute belief and faith in what you are told. This doesn't mean that this is an immature faith. This is just an absolute faith with no doubt, no clouding of vision, no distractions, just complete pure faith and that is how we need to accept what Jesus did for us with complete faith complete acceptance and not worrying about what others will think and as parents here we also need to be aware of how we teach our children so Proverbs 22 6 says start children off on the way they should go and even when they are old they will not turn from it so children don't naturally doubt and question. That's something they pick up from us as adults. And Jesus here had been receiving and blessing the children while still teaching those around him. And his actions here highlight the importance of children in society. He didn't separate the teaching and the children. He was doing the two at once. And Jesus knows that children are the future. Now, it's a sobering fact, but... Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. I'll just let you dwell on that. If we don't do our bit, the children of the future and Christianity is one generation away from ex extinction. So the disciples had seen the children as a hindrance to Jesus. They saw them as a nuisance and annoyance. Jesus, in their eyes, didn't need to be troubled by children with no knowledge or understanding. They were doing that gatekeeper role to, uh, to ensure that only those that were needy came to Jesus. So for us here, the youth of our church, they're the only ones in the future that are going to keep it going. So if we don't invest in our children and in our youth, it's not just them that we're going to be letting down, it's Christianity as a whole. And we know, as parents, how important it is for children to eat, to grow strong, and feed their bodies. If our children are sick, we take them to a doctor. If they're struggling with something at school, we try and help them. The same is true with a child's spiritual needs. We cannot neglect this aspect of their life. If it's important to us, then it needs to be equally important to our children. 
We can't force them to believe what we believe. After all, most teenagers, young adults, at some point have a rebellious stage. We just need to set their roots down firmly in a loving church family. And Jesus welcomes all the young and the old. As Jesus showed by his example in this passage, the church and the kingdom of God isn't just for us here. It's for the youth and for the children, everyone in equal measure. So let's move on to the second part, which is entitled The Rich Young Man. I've entitled this kind of money and status. And this passage is kind of a warning to us against the love of money and the love of status, or the love of us finding identity in something other than Jesus. Money and status, they tend to go hand in hand. The more you have of one, the more you have of the other. They seem to be interwoven. And as we go through the passage, we'll kind of see this. And there's an interesting comparison as well between the, first two, between the two passages. In the first passage, we have the children with nothing except absolute faith. And then in this passage, we have the young man who had everything and he wanted more. The young man, he had wealth, he had education, he had status, he had power, and he was well-connected in society. He had everything the world craves for, and yet he was still lost and he was looking for more. So I ask the question, is that a familiar story for anyone here today? On the face of it, we have everything, a comfortable life, a good job, a loving family. But you feel like there's more. There's still a hole that needs plugging, and you're looking for more. I just want to say that hole can be filled this morning. Everyone here who's come to faith in Jesus has had that moment of questioning. That moment of asking, is this it? Is there more? So this man that we're going to learn about, he's got a lot more in common with us all than we think. So the young man knew who Jesus was. His actions show that he knows and had an understanding that Jesus was not just a regular teacher or scholar. I just want you to imagine this now. So here it is. This man, he runs up to Jesus and then kneels before him. So he's acknowledging the difference here with Jesus. At this point, he's throwing off his status as a powerful man. He's the polar opposite of one of the Pharisees or scribes who we read about earlier in the chapter. They were all about status. They were all about trying to trip Jesus up. This man is able to discard his status. It doesn't mean that much to him. The one thing he can't discard, though, quite so easily, is his wealth. So can you imagine some of the, you know, the richest people in the world, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Richard Branson or even yourself, running after someone, physically sprinting after someone and then kneeling down in front of them to ask them a question? I don't think there's many of us here that would do that. And yet this man has done it. His actions here speak more than his words. His actions are the actions of a man who is desperate for help. His actions show that he has heard that Jesus is different. He would have heard about the miracles that Jesus has performed, and he would have heard about the healings that have been conducted. And he is aware that Jesus has great power, and he acknowledges that with his actions, and he acknowledges that 
by his action of running after him and kneeling in front of him. So this man has something else which is to be admired. He has bravery. He's brave enough to publicly throw off his status and power. And he's lowering himself in front of Jesus. I want to set the scene. This is not a one-on-one meeting here. This is in front of a crowd of hundreds, possibly thousands of people. And he's also brave enough to ask a question. And he's probably asking the question that numerous people in that crowd would be longing to know the answer to. And that is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So again, here, he's being respectful and he's not trying to catch Jesus out with this question. His actions show the respect by kneeling and using the words of good teacher. But Jesus then gives a gentle rebuke to this man and says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now here we can draw a comparison about status. Jesus is the only person on earth who could rightfully be called good teacher because he's the son of God. However, he doesn't pull rank and say, well done, young man. How did you know? I am that important. I am the savior. No, he just simply says, why do you call me good? Because Jesus knows that now's not the time for him to reveal himself as the son of God. Jesus has quite clearly thrown off the status which is rightfully his. So we go back to the question, and that shows that this man was an educated man. And he had an understanding that there was more than this world had to offer. His understanding is is there in the question, because it is to inherit, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, for anyone to inherit something, there has to be death. So the rich man is seeking something beyond what he has now. And I don't believe this was a quest that was driven out of selfishness and him wanting to live forever. He's seeking to secure his time after this life, to be given reassurance that death is not the end. And if you're sat here this morning with the same thoughts... Let me assure you that death is not the end. And we have a saviour in Jesus who died for us on a cross to set us free from sin so that if we believe in him and ask him into our lives, we'll be with him in glory. And then Jesus' further response to the question is this. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honour your father and mother. And the man responds by saying, I've kept all of these since a child. It's it's good to note here that all of these commandments that Jesus says, they are all what I class as worldly commandments. They are all commandments that we can see if they've been held or broken. They have an obvious and visible consequence to breaking one of these. If you had, you know, being, had broken one of these, there's a chance that you would have ended up in prison, you know. Your name would have been mud. He wouldn't have been the rich, powerful man that he is. And Jesus doesn't list any of the commandments that I would say have a spiritual element. 
And is this because he knows the man's heart and he knows our hearts? Most of us here could probably stand up and say we haven't broken any of those worldly commandments, but could we say the same for the other commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God and remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So Jesus knew the man's heart. He knew the man's love for money and wealth was strong. Money and wealth had become this man's idol. It had become his God. And here's the amazing thing. We read that Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. Here was a man, if you look at the Ten Commandments in the order, here was a man who had broken the first of the Ten Commandments. He'd had a deep love for money and money was his God and yet Jesus loved him. So I just want to say, Jesus loves us all, each of us here. It doesn't matter what you've done, he just loves you. He looks at us and he knows us. There's nothing that is hidden. He sees our fears, our anxiety, the things we're ashamed of. He sees it all. And he doesn't condemn, he doesn't criticize. He just loves. And it's a pure and it's powerful And it should cause us to kneel and yield up everything. So just like this man here that we read about, Jesus loves you. And he loves you regardless if if you have a relationship with him. It doesn't stop there. Jesus wants this man to inherit his kingdom. And he knows, as I've said, what this man has done, both good and bad, He also knows that this man has thrown off the status that he has earned, that society has given him. His actions in that moment has completely disregarded that status. And then Jesus tells him how to inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't hide it away. He tells the rich man, you lack one thing. And I believe the one thing that he lacks is the kingdom of God. He doesn't have Jesus in his life. He doesn't know Jesus for his true self. And he tells this man what his barrier is to receiving the treasure. And it is this. He says, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. So Jesus recognizes the man as a love of money. The man, as we've seen, is happy to give up his status but not so much his money. The actions that we described earlier, running after Jesus, kneeling in front of him, calling him good teacher, and asking these questions, they're not the actions of someone who's a powerful man who wants to save face and keep his place in society. After all, he had the wealth. He could have sent someone else to do that for him. The barrier between this man and the kingdom of God was his love for money. And we read, he goes away and he's sorrowful because of his wealth and because of his possessions. And he's got so much to lose, and he just can't do it. And Jesus goes on and says, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So, does that mean that Jesus is uh, 
against money and doesn't like it? No, I don't believe that's what this is telling us. If we look at it in detail, Jesus doesn't say, go and burn all your money and all your possessions or destroy everything that, you're, that you known, own. He tells the man to redistribute his wealth. And I believe this is the crucial point that we need to understand as believers about wealth and money. God is not anti-wealth. He is anti the love of wealth. He's not anti the pursuit of wealth. He's anti the love of the pursuit of wealth. And he's anti that pursuit of wealth when it becomes our sole focus. And we're only doing it because we want to increase our status or increase our bank balance or to show off. Just remember, he knows our attitude towards wealth and he knows our heart's desires. God's not anti us having a nice home and nice possessions. We just need to be doubly sure that we have the correct attitude towards it all. Remember that our God is a God of plenty, a God of excess. His love knows no limits. His provision has no limits. But it's his. It's not ours. So one of my, uh, my favourite verses in Matthew 6, 26, we read that the birds of the air have all that they need and yet we are far more valuable to God than they are. So we will be catered for. And as a parent, we cater and we want to cater for our children. We want to give them everything they need. And our Heavenly Father wants exactly the same for us. He wants us to be comfortable. And the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 shows us that we need to make the most of what we have. And we should actively look to grow what we have, not just sit on it and let it fester. And this is as relevant to finance as it is to physical and spiritual gifts. If we're fortunate enough to be financially secure, then we need to be careful we don't fall into the more, more, more trap. But we also need to be careful that we're not scared of it and bury it in a bank account, saving it for a rainy day and not using it for the good that it could do. And Jesus then carries on and he talks to his disciples and says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. That's the interesting bit. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So firstly, we notice here how Jesus refers to the disciples as children. In the previous part, he'd given a general description to those that have wealth. I think Jesus here is saying to the disciples, I see that you have given up your wealth and your homes to follow me. The disciples are therefore unburdened as the children who came to the Jesus at the beginning of the passage. And we need to be like those children. We need to be free from our emotional ties to wealth. And it's our emotions and our heart that tie us to wealth. It's not a physical tying. So we need to pray for a heart that's not tied to finance, that is free from the desire to always have more. We need hearts and hands that are open when it comes to finance. Finance may go through our hands and into places where it needed most. We don't want to be like a monkey grabbing a nut and just holding onto it tighter and tighter and tighter and never letting go. 
Now, for the camel going through the eye of the needle. Now, I always thought that this was a reference to a physical, uh, a physical kind of gate in the city, which was kind of small and narrow. And so the merchants uh, would kind of lead their camels or try to lead their camels through the gates to sell what they had. Um, however, as I've studied, there's very little factual basis for this. But I do like the imagery that's connected. So a camel would, a camel would be led through this very small gate into the market by the, by the merchant. Now, the camel can't physically fit through the gate with all of the merchant's bags and belongings and all the goods that are attached to it. The only way that camel's going to fit through that gate is if it goes through completely stripped and naked with nothing attached. So the link being for us here that the rich can only enter heaven without wealth attached. And so we need to lose our desire to hang on to wealth. The love of money needs to not be there. Alongside this, the love of status, the love of power, the love of identity needs to be removed before we enter to God's kingdom. We need to be stripped to our bones so that all is on offer is our hearts and they're as pure as they can be. So how do we do that? We can't get rid of the love of the money or power of possessions, of identity on our own. Only God can help us do that. We need to ask him for his help. And we need to be asked... We need to ask to be changed of any self-importance, of any love of material things that will get in the way. And I'm not saying let's sell everything and go and live in the woods and eat plants. But I am saying if we have a heart that we'd be willing to do that, if God asked us to, that is the heart attitude God wants us to have. And the most surprising thing is that that's the attitude of your heart You'll be blessed in ways that you didn't know were possible. And then the final part of the passage reads, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus is ending this on a positive note. He's made it clear that the love of money is our downfall. The love of money is like an addiction. And the man can see no way of breaking that addiction. So telling or asking an addict to give something up will not and does not work. The person in the midst of that addiction has to be in the place where they want to give that addiction up. Addictions are so strong they can't be broken just because someone asked them to do it. It's when the person is in the midst of that that they admit they have a problem with something. And that could be money, it could be drugs, it could be gambling, it could be toxic relationships, it could be anything. At this point, when they realize how deep that addiction is and they feel that it's impossible for them to give it up, at that point is when God can step in and ask for help and he will break those addictions. In Luke 18, 27, we read... The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. It's a miracle of grace when those who have wealth do not put their trust in it. Man cannot, but God can break the spell that riches exercise over the wealthy.
And God also promises, when that love of money or the other addiction, whatever it might be, is broken, you will gain 100 times in other ways. Your relationships with your close family will improve, your home life will improve, your work or career will have a new enjoyment and focus. When it's not about money, but about love and enjoyment, everything takes on a new light. So the church is where we should find that, and we can find that enjoyment and deep, meaningful friendships, a new love for our brothers and sisters. The church is our home. We walk into a church, hopefully this one, and we say, I feel at home. That should be the feeling of a church. A church is built on relationships. A church is a place to find new opportunities to serve, and maybe even a new career. From God, you'll receive a hundred times what you have given up. And the church should be the facilitator of that. And the very last part of the passage, Jesus ends by giving us a glimpse of heaven. Just saying, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So there's no place for first or last in heaven. Your status that you have now is irrelevant to God. Your wealth is irrelevant. If you always had VIP tickets to events and could eat at the best restaurants, you could skip the queues whenever you went. Well, in heaven, we'll be all there together. God doesn't entertain status or wealth or power. There's no place for any of those in heaven. So the pursuit of those on earth is futile. So this... I don't know why this little analogy came to me. With, you don't fill yourself up on food before you go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. You go with an empty stomach. In the same way, we enter heaven absolutely naked with nothing. And when, we get, when we're there, we gain absolutely everything. So chasing riches here on earth is absolutely pointless. So if I can ask the worship team to come up as we close... So how do we respond? Do we sell everything and wait to hear what Jesus wants us to do? No. But what we do need to do is we need to have hands which are open and they're never closed around money, wealth, possessions, or power. These things, they may rest in our hands, but we should be willing for them to be blown out of our hands by a gust of wind if that is God's will for our lives. So if your barrier to experiencing the fullness of the kingdom of God is not any of those things that we've mentioned today, ask God to show you what it is, and I guarantee you he will. If you think you're like the men, man we've read about today, and you don't have the strength to loosen your grip around your possessions, ask God for help. He'll help you. After all, he wants you to be free, and he wants you to experience his kingdom. Chat to an elder or a trusted friend here this morning if there's something that's troubling you. It doesn't have to be finance-related. It could be different. It could be a different addiction, and God will break those if we ask him to. So let's actively guard ourselves against an attitude of more and look to crave an attitude of contentment. So as we go into our time of worship... Please come forward if you want to receive prayer or use this time to speak and pray with a trusted friend. 
And if you have something which you feel you're being led to share, please bring it up to Tom um, and he'll facilitate that. Thank you.